Skepticism as Science The Illusion of Critical Social Justice And closing the year with three new board members. Welcome to Fair News Weekly. To read all of the articles discussed in this podcast, please visit fairforall.org news. As we approach the end of the year, we are grateful for the community that has come together in support of FAIR's mission of advancing civil rights and liberties for all and promoting a common culture of fairness, understanding, and humanity. Since launching less than nine months ago, nearly 40,000 people have joined our pro-human movement, including 100 chapters across the United States, five new chapters in Canada, and a network of more than 80 attorneys who have advised hundreds of people. Every day, we are working to develop resources, implement our programs and services, and grow our vibrant grassroots organization. But while our growth has inspired optimism, our work is just beginning. If you want to learn more or get involved, please join us or support our efforts with a tax-deductible donation. We are thrilled to announce the addition of three new members of our Board of Advisors, Batya Angar-Sargon, John Wood Jr., and Jonathan Kay. FAIR has recently launched a chapter in Mobile, Alabama. If you are in the area and want to connect with other fair-minded people, don't hesitate to reach out to the chapter leader, Martin Scott Catino, at mobile at fairforall.org. This week on our Fair for All Substack, Fair's Grayson Slover wrote a case study on Mystic Valley Regional Charter School, MVRCS, located in Malden, Massachusetts, about the lawsuit they filed against the state's Board of Elementary and Secondary Education, Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, DESE, and Commissioner of Elementary and Secondary Education. The lawsuit alleged that DESE's new evaluation criteria surrounding culturally responsive teaching amounts to an unlawful censoring of MVRCS's educational mission and repudiation of its charter. Specifically, DESE requires that schools view education as a pathway to liberation from systems of oppression, but MVRCS explicitly roots its educational philosophy according to the principles laid out in America's founding documents, and thus reject the notion that America consists of such systems of oppression. According to Slover, MVRCS believes that oppression where it does exist in America is best opposed through a closer adherence to America's founding ideals. By contrast, DESE directs educators and students to work to liberate themselves from systems of oppression that, in this view, are upheld by these same ideals. Last week, we published our first Fair Advisor Spotlight series, written by journalist Sophie Lee, which features Fair Advisor Michael Shermer. The biographical piece traces Shermer's history as he went from a kid with a religious bent to an atheist and world-renowned skeptic. When asked to define skepticism, Shermer explained that, Skepticism is just the default, null, hypothesis position of science. That is, your claim isn't true until you prove otherwise, because everybody can think of half a dozen great ideas before breakfast. But so what? It doesn't mean they're true, he explains. Therefore, skepticism is simply just science writ large. 
we're applying those tools of rationality and empiricism to any claim, religious, political, economic. Recently, Shermer has launched his own substack, Skeptic, which will serve as a revival of his former Scientific American column that ran from 2001 to 2019, though he will also use it to write skeptical commentary on social, political, cultural, economic issues, ideological issues, and various movements. For Daily Mail, Fair Advisor Batya Ungar Sargon wrote about the Jesse Smollett trial the way overcredulous media outlets and politicians handled the case, and a recent statement from the Black Lives Matter organization supporting Smollett following his guilty conviction for staging a fake hate crime against himself. According to Ungar Sargon, BLM's statement that we can never believe police was a bridge too far and revealed something deeper at work in our culture on the left. When it comes to the relationship between race and the criminal justice system, she explained that The moral force of Black Lives Matter comes from the way the movement pointed to a standard of justice that is not being met for Black Americans. But in their support for Jesse Smollett, BLM betrayed that cause, demanding that Smollett be held to a lower standard of justice because he is a Black man. Angar Sargon is worried that some segments of society have now abandoned a worldview based on right versus wrong for a worldview based on powerful versus powerless, and then superimposed a racial binary onto it. For The Spectator, Fair Advisor Douglas Murray wrote about the tendency for people living in the modern era to make judgments over everyone in the past, given the benefits of hindsight. This privileged perspective wrongfully makes people believe that they are better than historical figures and causes us to naively assume that we would never have made such mistakes. According to Murray, the most obvious example is that everyone now knows which side they would have been on during the Second World War, in large part because we know how history went, yet history is less clear as you are living through it. Murray is worried that we seem to have a growing unwillingness to understand the past and points to the recent removal of a Thomas Jefferson statue in New York City Hall because the Founding Father apparently did not represent our contemporary values. Additionally, our tendency to be more concerned about safety than liberty during the COVID pandemic, according to Murray, has given him a little taster of how people in history must have felt. He is concerned that there may be truth to the saying, a right once given up is never returned. For Quillette, Anna Kryloff and Jay Tansman wrote about the troubling intrusion of illiberal thought into science and education. Last June, one of the authors, Kryloff, published a letter in the Journal of Physical Chemistry, describes the parallels she sees in academia regarding forbidden ideas and names to her experience growing up in the USSR, where ideology permeated all aspects of life, and survival required strict adherence to the party line and enthusiastic displays of ideologically proper behavior. While Kryloff expected to be viciously mobbed or possibly cancelled for her comparison, she was pleasantly surprised at the flood of encouraging emails from other academics sharing her concern that radical political doctrines are being injected into STEM pedagogy and are corrupting objective science. 
These positive responses gave her hope that the silent liberal majority within STEM may eventually prevail over the forces of illiberalism. The article goes on to share comments from many of the responding scientists who possessed a historical understanding of this kind of ideological movement. For Reason, Greg Lukianoff wrote about the fall of political correctness in the mid-90s when PCU, a movie about a rebellious fraternity, openly mocked PC culture. This was around the time when many speech codes on college campuses were being struck down, such as the overboard speech code at Stanford Law School, banning speech or other expression intended to insult or stigmatize. According to Lukianoff, these events marked the end of the first great age of political correctness, but it had not been permanently extinguished. Instead, it gathered strength over the next two decades, rooting itself in university hiring practices and speech policing until it became what people now refer to as wokeness, or the much-abused term, cancel culture. According to Lukianoff, political correctness didn't decline and fall. It went underground and then rose again. If anything, it's stronger than ever today. Yet, some influential figures on the left still downplay the problem, going so far as to pretend that the increase in even-tenured professors being fired for off-limits speech is a sign of a healthy campus. Lukianoff believes we have now entered the second great age of political correctness and spends the rest of the piece giving contemporary examples of PC culture run amok. Ultimately, he believes we need more than to simply reform current institutions. We need alternatives, too. For Counterweight, Pierre Gate wrote about society's past and present skirmishes with so-called critical social justice movement and encourages us not to abandon hope since its influence may be readily dispelled with a dose of courage and a word of truth. Gate described how he became aware of the issue of critical social justice and the moment it entered his workplace, through mandatory anti-racism diversity training. After the patronizing and specious training sessions, he decided to be straightforward and honest with his co-workers about his feelings about it. According to Gate, their response was vindicating. One of my colleagues had finished watching the video and admitted that it filled her with a similar repugnance and that she wouldn't have been comfortable admitting it if I had not declared my own position so emphatically. As a team, we had a cathartic discussion about race, racism, and the complexities of individual identity. Gate believes that the perceived influence of critical social justice on those around you may just be an illusion and urges you to stand up and speak out because that's the only way some will discover they're actually part of the silent majority and be emboldened to speak up. For the Cornell Chronicle, Linda B. Glassier reported on a new research from the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, modeling political tipping points, the threshold of political polarization beyond which it becomes impossible to curtail. According to the researchers, we found that polarization increases incrementally, only up to a point. Above this point, there is a sudden change in the fabric of the institution, like the change from water to steam when the temperature exceeds the boiling point. These tipping points are identified in part by a degree to which certain stressful events either bring a society together or further tear it apart. 
According to Bolesław Szymanski, one of the study's co-authors, we see this very disturbing pattern in which a shock brings people a little bit closer initially, but if polarization is too extreme, eventually the effects of a shared fate are swamped by the existing divisions and people become divided even on the shock issue. If we reach that point, we cannot unite even in the face of war, climate change, pandemics, or other challenges to the survival of our society. The study's lead author, Michael Macy, likened voters to nuclear technicians, whose job it is to bring political temperature back down before we reach the point of no return and have a political meltdown. Finally, if you liked this podcast, subscribe, share it with a friend, and leave us a rating and review. Make sure to check out our newsletter and weekly roundup to read more into any of this week's stories. Or visit fairforall.org news. Donations are always welcome at fairforall.org donate.